Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Keith, I didn't tell you I was going to do this because I knew you were going to stop me. But today is actually a big day. Do you know why? Today is a big day? Yes. Okay, what's the date? September 5th, 2023. Hmm. No, I really don't know. <laughs> is this one of those like some big historical event happened today? And Huge historical event. World changing event. Two years ago. Truth Over Tribe was born. Oh, really? <laughs> Happy yeah. birthday to yeah. us. Happy birthday to the podcast. I thought it would be fun, not so much just for you and I to think about the last two years, which we won't spend much time on, but just to say thank you to everybody who listens to this podcast, because in more ways than I can count, it has far outstripped what I ever imagined it was going <laughs> to be in the long run. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that people listening to this, it's obviously hitting a niche that we aren't the only ones who feel the way we feel. And you listening to this, you've shared it with friends. You've had conversations with friends about the podcast. And that's given Keith and I this amazing opportunity to honestly have a lot of fun. This, is, this has been a fun project. It has been fun. I think when we started it, we thought it might only be fun. Right. I mean, you know, that just maybe we yeah. get to talk. But you're right. We have met a lot of cool people along the way who have really propelled this podcast and more and more people are listening to it. And I think we're kind of starting this movement. Hopefully inside the church, but inside our whole community that is trying to put politics back into perspective and to have a more biblical Christ-centered faith instead of a political faith. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, obviously I found myself thanking God for both the opportunity to do this and what he's done through it. I mean, the last year, again, this is where I just say things have outstripped what I ever expected. In the last year, we've had, I think, about a million downloads of the podcast, which is a number I can't even mentally conceptualize, if I'm going to be honest. Can I tell a quick story yeah. that you and I both heard? There was a guy, I would guess he's probably in his late 60s, and he had two sons who grew up in the church. And one son kind of stayed with the faith and kept following faithfully after Jesus got involved in a church. The other son moved out of town and went a different direction, predictable direction these days, as he kept withdrawing from the church and now no longer goes. And then the son that had drifted away was on the phone with his father, and he said, Dad, I, I found this podcast that you might be interested in listening to. It's called Truth Over Tribe. And the funny thing about it is the father had already been listening to it, but this son found it. And the reason he was excited to share with his father is because he was seeing a new way to follow Christ that wasn't so 
political and reactionary. And when I say political, I mean partisan, right? And so reactionary to what was going on in the world. It wasn't angry. It was a different way to follow Jesus intelligently, humbly, open to learn. And so it was really a doorway for this guy to re-energize and reconnect with his faith and with his dad and his brothers and his whole family. So it's just kind of a cool story like that that motivates us to keep going. I feel like we have a number of stories like that. People who've even reached out to us and asked us to help them find churches or communities where they can get re-engaged in their faith because they left for the reasons that Keith laid out. And so again, thank you so much for listening and being on this team with us and part of the journey alongside us. We're excited to see what God does in the future. And with that fine introduction, how about an abrupt shift? Yeah, we got to get to it because we got a lot to talk about today. (laughs) It's going to be long. If you tuned in to the Republican debate the other night, and by the way, I tried, and after like five minutes, I was like, okay, I can't do this. But I did hear the opening question of the debate, and let's just start with it. Here's the opening question of the Republican debate. We sit here tonight, the number one song on the Billboard chart is called Rich Men, North of Richmond. It is by a singer from Farmville, Virginia, named Oliver Anthony. His lyrics speak of alienation, of deep frustration with the state of government and of this country. Washington, D.C. is about 100 miles north of Richmond. There's Richmond, north of Richmond. Lord knows it all. Just want to have total control. Want to know what you think. DeSantis, why is this song striking such a nerve in this country right now? I bet a lot of people heard that question and they didn't know who Oliver Anthony was. When did you first come across him, Patrick? My first introduction to Oliver Anthony was on Christian Nationalist Twitter. So oh, really? <laughs> it was. It was a guy who I normally have muted and who will not be named right now. Someone sent me a link to his Twitter feed with a post. And so then I did the thing I shouldn't have done and started scrolling through and seeing other things. And he had a link with the video of Oliver Anthony singing and it was like, sing it loud, brother, you know, it was kind of this. And so I listened to it. And of course, at that point, I'm coming in a little bit skeptical or a lot of bit skeptical. I wasn't a total fan of the song when I first listened to it. And we can get into that later. But there was a lot of it that I liked. And I thought this is tapping into something. Well, it's the song Rich Men North of Richmond. Mm, And it did. Who are the rich men north of Richmond? (laughs) Well, that's open to interpretation, evidently. (laughs) Maybe we'll be able to get into that. Oliver Anthony says they are the people in Washington, D.C. They were north of Richmond, Virginia. Yes. But I I've also heard people say that Richmond was the capital of the Confederacy. And so when he said the Richmond north of Richmond, he meant the Union and he is a closet Confederate supporter. So I haven't actually heard that one. Oh, you didn't? I'm quite certain that's not what he meant. Oh, I am too now. But it immediately got sucked into the culture war, Oliver Anthony, the song, the whole thing. And so you started seeing all these conservatives come out and talk favorably about it from Laura Ingram to Matt Walsh to Carrie Lake, Jason Whitlock. 
But Mike then, Flynn, everybody's Mike, favorite. <laughs> Did you see Mike Flynn the other day talking about how churches needed to stop uh, preaching out of the Bible and start preaching out of the Constitution? <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't believe it. I would think that's made up, but <laughs> I literally saw him do it. Uh, maybe it was a deep fake. I don't know. So if you don't know, Mike Flynn, he's the leader. Well, he's been in government. He was in Trump's government, but now he's the leader of Turning Point USA, which is this kind of Christian nationalist revival movement. They go from city to city. They have these kind of Pentecostally services of, you know, I mean, spiritual gifts, that kind of thing. But it's all about taking back America for God and weird stuff. The crazy thing about it, Mike Flynn was a very respected general for the bulk of his career. And it just shows you how the culture war has taken people far astray from, you know, in a way that's really not very good. <laughs> from where we all started. But yes, this has been everywhere. It had, I think, something like 5 million views in the first 48 hours. So the song goes totally viral. It became the number one song on iTunes almost and instantly. And yeah. Billboard. It's a huge hit. And you have major news outlets talking about it from the New York Times to the Washington Post to NPR to, you know, your more Christian things like Christianity Today and your more conservative news sources, Fox News, The Daily Wire. You know all the major players and they were all and they have all been talking about Oliver Anthony. The most remarkable part of it is that he's just a no-name guy. I mean, he, no one knew who he was until a guy named Draven Riff, who has a Twitter account called Radio WV. Now, you need to do it in a radio voice. Radio WV. <laughs> and the WV stands for West Virginia. And he just takes kind of musical acts or things happening in West Virginia and tries to promote them on his pretty small Twitter account. At least it was small then. And he went to bed. He woke up the next morning after posting this Oliver Anthony song and saw that it had had millions and millions of views. It's just one of those things that spontaneously took off. Something that wouldn't have happened in a pre-internet or a pre-social media time. But Oliver Anthony became the person that everyone is talking about. And I think anytime a piece of art, whether that's music or film, experiences this kind of meteoric rise, especially when you're talking about a no-name recording a video in his backyard, <laughs> it should really make us ask the question, what about this song has connected to the hopes and dreams, longings, fears, grievances of so many people? What does this song reveal about our moment? And of course, as Christians, we should ask, how does Jesus speak to those same hopes, longings, fears, and grievances? A lot of people I've heard talking about this are trying to psychologize Oliver Anthony, you know, dissect him. What did he mean by this or that? And we can get into that a little bit because now that he's spoken about the song, I think we can talk about that in a more informed way. But that's never been my interest. My interest is always what are people out there hearing in that song that taps into something inside of them that makes them respond to drive not just this song, but all of his songs into the top 10 of the iTunes charts. That's what's really interesting to me. I sent this song to a bunch of people I know and just said, what is it about this song that is speaking to everybody? And that's the conversation that we want to have today. Yeah. So let me give you a roadmap of today's episode. We will talk about the song itself, what it says, how maybe we should understand it. But again, like he said, that's not the focal point. We'll move from there to talk about its reception, how it's connecting. And we'll start with an interesting group, given the nature of the song, which is its reception by elites. So we're talking about media pundits, journalists, government officials. We want to look at what their response tells us about this song. And then we 
want to look at the general response of the American populace. Why are so many Americans connecting with it? But let's start with the song itself. And we're going to go ahead and play it right here on the podcast. I'm pretty sure we've qualified for the fair use of copyright. <laughs> well, just a little bit of heads up warning. If you haven't heard the song, there's some language in it that you may or may not find objectionable. It's the kind of thing that Patrick uses every day around the office. So oh don't gosh. worry about it. But <laughs> neither but, one of us. But not so much me. Uh, but anyway, I wouldn't play this song for my seven year old. So there's your proper warning. I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for bullshit pay so I can sit out here and waste my life away. Drag back home and drown my troubles away. It's a damn shame what the world's gotten to for people like me, people like you. Wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is. Just miners on an island somewhere Lord, we got folks in the street Ain't got nothing to eat And the old beast milk and welfare What the world's gotten to For people like me People like you Wish I could just wake up And it not be true But it is Your dollar ain't shit, and it's taxed to no end. Cause the rich men, not the rich men. I've been selling my soul, working all day. Overtime hours for bullshit pay. So first of all, let me say this. I actually think, I mean, just musically, I think this is a great song. I mean, it's, it's a single voice. It's a guitar. There's no auto-tuning. It's raw. He's got a great voice. He's singing in tune. You can feel the lament, the hurt, the pain. And so that was the thing initially, honestly, that shocked me. I, I expected something more angry, and I heard something more 
painful. Draven Riff, the guy who I said posted this on Radio WV, he had heard of this guy, Oliver Anthony, who went up to his place to record a couple songs he wanted to post to my Twitter account. And this one was not done. Richmond, north of Richmond, was kind of incomplete. And he heard part of it, and he forced Oliver Anthony to finish it before he wanted to in order to post it. So he heard something that you heard, a lot of people heard, that was kind of a soul ache. There's something about it that's deep and passionate. Obviously, this comes out of a tradition, you know, the country Jeremiah raging against the powerful for taking what little the poor have. It's a very Nathan and David situation if you're a Bible nerd like me. But, you know, I'm thinking about people like Johnny Cash, Pete Seeger, Woody Guthrie. And I actually think Robert F. Kennedy, every Democrat's favorite Democrat to hate or love, I'm not sure. No, every Republican's favorite Democrat. (laughs) Every Republican's favorite Democrat. That's the way to say it. (laughs) That's good. I I think he actually got the measure of the song, even though he might be one of the rich men in Richmond. This is what he <laughs> I know that's the irony of the whole thing, right? All right, let's go. This is what he said. He said, now that is an extraordinary song, raw yet intelligent, defiant yet compassionate. It's about working class hardship. It's about low wages. It's about degraded food supply, elite corruption, obesity, homelessness, and despair. And I would add to that, it's also about surveillance capitalism, the lines about people tracking and listening to what you do so they can control you. So this is an aching song. And the way I like to put it is that this song is a vibe not a political program. A lot of people tried to read it as a political program, like Oliver Anthony's giving us his five-point plan to make America great again or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) But no, it's a vibe. And and this actually fits for me with a, we're going to have a private school moment. There's an old Greek distinction in art between pathos and logos. So so logos is mind-related. It's what are the ideas in the piece of art? And pathos is what are the emotions that this piece of art evokes in the person who is trying to create it, but also in the people who are receiving it and listening to us. And this song is almost pure pathos to me. This is a vibe. It's trying to make you feel something. Well, it is. And yeah, he makes some points or at least hints about some things that he's passionate about or that have upset him. Some people have wanted, like you said, to make a political program out of it. And that is silly. And yet there is a history of songs being used in politics, right? Think about Yoko Ono and John Lennon and all the give peace a chance or Bob Dylan's song, Times Are Changing. That's one of the best songs, their most popular songs in history. And the idea that times are changing is, hey, look, everybody, the morals of our world are changing and you need to get on board with them. Kind of a right side of history song. Yeah. And to say that it's pathos doesn't mean it doesn't have a message. I mean, the message fundamentally seems clear to me. And it's this, that the game is rigged. I'm trying to do everything I can. There's nothing I can do to succeed, to get what I feel like I deserve or just need to have to have a basic, simple, happy life. And someone's got to do something about it, but no one is. This is just the way it is. Well, yes, that's what we're going to get to a little bit later. This is a song about class warfare, about somebody who has given up because the system doesn't work for them. And that's his community. Those are the people he knows and went to school with and worked with in the factory. And he's angry and hurt and discouraged. And that's what I think resonated with so many people because so many people feel like the system is rigged against them. Yeah. We're already going there. But to talk about what the song means, I I always think the best way to do that is by listening to the person who created (laughs) the piece of art and let them explain to you what they were trying to communicate. And thankfully, we now have a better idea from Oliver Anthony what he was trying to do. But let's start here with who Oliver Anthony is. First of all, that's not his real name. His name is Chris 
Mansfield. I think his pseudonym is much better. Oliver Anthony. Well, it's his good. grandfather's name, yeah. right? And he just took it a couple years ago. It's kind of a professional. I think a few name. months ago he oh, really? really embraced it as a professional name. And he grew up in a two-parent family, although I think it was a blended family. His mom was a realtor. His dad ran a junkyard. But he dropped out of high school. Eventually got his GED and spent his twenties all the way up to contemporary. I think he's in his mid thirties now, working in factories and specifically paper mills. And so he's talked a lot about how he had to work night shifts, 12 hours a day. He's making 1450 an hour. It's hot. It's miserable. And he lives in a $750 camper on a piece of property that he got a mortgage on yeah, a lot from of the people, bank in 2019. A lot of people were initially critical because it was reported that he lived on 90 acres and they're like, well, it doesn't sound like a guy who's, you know, down on his luck or something. Yeah. But then it turns out that he owes a lot of money on that. And like you said, lives in a camper with a wife, two kids, and I read that she's pregnant with their third child right now. And by the way, that 90-acre property costs quite a bit less than <laughs> what uh, most starter homes would cost to begin right, with. Right, it was so. under $100,000, I believe. But he was working the night shift, like you said, and that's always been said to be the hardest shift to work because you just lose connection with a lot of people in your family, your community, because you're working these weird hours. And maybe that was part of the reason that he kind of started to slip into this depression and even having suicidal thoughts that's when he started picking up the music and the music he would hope would be kind of healing to bring him out of that dark spot he also started recording music because he thought he was going to die and he didn't want it to be forgotten or, or left. And not necessarily because he was going to kill himself, but because he was having some serious health issues as a result of his depression and clearly just someone dealing with his own mortality. It's probably also worth noting that according to his interview with the Free Press several months ago, he had some sort of experience with God. He said he spent his whole life wrestling with the idea of God and just recently came to believe in him. Now, I don't know that he's a Christian or what that entails. Joe Rogan said that he gave his life to Jesus. Now, I don't know what Joe Rogan. <laughs> Joe Rogan said that? It was actually it was clearly affected Joe Rogan. He says three months ago, he gives his life to Jesus. He's trying to get over addictions. He's trying to get mm. sober. He says, just clean me up and I'll be for you. And now three months later, it's a little bit health and wealthy. I saw just the other night that he appeared at Joe Rogan's comedy club in Austin. So it was a surprise guest. People are there expecting comedy. And then at some point in the night, they introduce Oliver Anthony and he walks out. So maybe he and Joe are tight. If you look into some of the stuff, he strikes you as someone who's in that kind of center left, center right, not quite. I don't even know where to put people like Joe Rogan. Kind of heterodox. Yeah, heterodox thinkers. Hold views that don't normally go together. But in some sense, that's refreshing because they're not towing a party line. Yeah. Even if it's a little bit inconsistent to me. <laughs> okay, so let's get into the question that I think a lot of people are discussing in the news on podcasts, which is what is Oliver Anthony's political program? And I think it's worth saying, I don't think he has one at all. In fact, I don't think he's taking political sides. This is what he said. He said, I'd like to stay out of politics. If anything, my music is more about the right than the left, which is interesting because the right's kind of taking them as their mascot. There's one thing we will not let people do today, and that is to stay out of politics. Yeah. <laughs> so, you don't, you so don't get that You're going to be in it. You're going to be used in the debate whether you want to be or not. He says, I'm singing more about like a lot of the older, super conservative politicians that brought us into endless war through my entire childhood. And he goes on to say that the one thing that's bothered him a lot is this. He says, the one thing that's bothered me is seeing people wrap politics up in this, his song. It's aggravating seeing people on conservative news try to identify with me like I'm one of them. It's aggravating seeing certain musicians and politicians act like we're buddies and act like we're fighting the same struggle here, like we're trying to present the same message. 
my heart goes out with them. I agree. That would be really frustrating to see you create this piece of art and then other people use it for their own agenda, but that's the world we live in. So the conservatives did that while the liberals all attacked him as being a racist and anti-welfare and all this other stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> welcome I'm to 2023. Him, yeah, welcome to 2023. Okay, so in his view, again, political program, in his view, he, he thinks that the problems with the world can't be fixed by government. So that is some form of a political view. He thinks that the problem is fundamentally interpersonal. So again, I just want to quote him. He said, you could find the most perfect human being in the world and put them in the White House. The problem isn't the White House or the federal government. The problem is us. Like human to human is where we fix our country. We don't need the government to save us. We just need each other. Sounds like us, doesn't it? I mean, that Joe Biden or Donald Trump or whoever it is that you want to be in the White House isn't going to be able to fix the problems that plague us because they are bigger than any one person or any president, any administration can handle. Yeah. He goes on, he says, if there's anything anyone could do immediately to start fixing things, it would be to stop looking at their phones so much. Was that the political program of Richmond, north of Richmond? He says they could stop looking at their phones and start looking at people around them and trying to just have conversations with them. The best way we heal in the immediate is for us to start having actual conversations with each other. I think that's probably a good start. We know very little about each other. Sounds very truth over tribish to me, right? We should have him on. <laughs> oh, that's right. You're against that. I'm for it. I've been trying to get it. I know it's never going to happen. There's no possible way. But just for the record, Patrick was dead set against having him well, we could on get the it, podcast. Get I think later. he's changed his tune, by the way. Yeah, I think it'd be up to it now, but he's not coming on. So sorry, Keith. All right. I think one other thing to say about his views on politics is that he's very clear that he thinks that we become fixated on differences and distractions. He, in fact, he calls politics a distraction. No kidding. And so he tells a story that, again, this could have been in the book Truth Over Tribe. In fact, it was. It was just someone else's story. I know two people who are biological brothers who won't talk to each other because they both have different political opinions about politicians who don't care about either one of them. And he sees that as a major problem. So the interesting thing for me is that his political program is less close to MAGA or the Daily Wire, and much closer to the Beatles. Love is all you need. That seems to be the core of what he's concerned about and what I'm sure he hoped he uh, had articulated in his song. Now, I know people are going to demur because there's a few lines that seem very, very political. And the one that's drawn the most attention is his line, if you're five foot three and you're 300 pounds, taxes ought not pay for your bags of fudge rounds. I didn't know what fudge rounds were, by the way. You didn't? They're no. little Debbies. I had to look it up. Oh, really? That's sad. I, that's a sad childhood. I thought that. he was just talking about like circular fudges. Oh, yeah. Bless your heart. A lot of people heard that line, and like Christina Day had an article about how he's attacking poor people, people on welfare, and they weren't the only ones who kind of went down that. Well, and on the nose, that is the way the lyric comes across, that he's against people taking welfare. I mean, just by itself as a singular statement. No, okay, we can stop right now and argue, but no, that's not what okay, it you're right. says. Just 300-pound people shouldn't be taking welfare. He's just <laughs> saying that when you're working, up in the kind of old song, when you're working in a factory, you know, making minimum wage, trying to support your family, to have your money taken and given to other people is hard, especially when you see other people using it in a way that seems to be abusing themselves. But Oliver Anthony clarified what he meant. And a lot of these quotes we're reading from an article from the Free Press. But here's what he said about that line about the welfare, 300 pounds, fudge rounds. He said, our government likes to throw money at problems without conceptualizing real solutions that connect to the individuals involved. The lyrics contrast that some are left without any and others are only left with the option of living on junk food. 
Meanwhile, our farming industry has been corporatized and sold out. Food is entirely too expensive, amen, especially in a nation with abundant farmland. In politics, it's all about keeping people who are dependent dependent. <laughs> it's starting to sound like Wendell Berry all of a sudden. So it's railing against that people don't have a lot of options, yes. that food's too expensive, that the corporate America is enriching themselves. That's his perspective. He's not against poor people. He himself is one of those. That's his family. Those are his friends. Those are his co-workers. I think that's right. And I'm still going to stand by the fact that the line on its own could be taken in a lot of different directions. But I think that- Thank we goodness need to... it wasn't on its own and it was in the context of a song. <laughs> I think he's <laughs> clarified the meaning and we can see where he was coming from. So let's just do a quick conclusion here on the song and the person, Oliver Anthony slash Chris Lensfield, whatever you want to call him. We're going to keep calling him Oliver Anthony. This is a guy who's worked hard jobs for low pay his whole life. He's battled depression. He's battled addiction. And he feels like the system is rigged against people like him. It's constantly kicking people like him down. And the song is not a political program. It's a complaint. It's a Jeremiah. It's saying what he thinks is wrong with the world. And he doesn't, again, have a political program because on a fundamental level, he seems to think that politics are mostly a distraction from the real interpersonal work that we all need to do. So I think we've covered the logos. What did the artist say his song was actually about? And I think that's valuable work. I think it honors him as a person made in the image of God, which give the dignity of listening to and taking seriously. But now I want to get to the main thing we really want to talk about, which is the pathos. How did this affect the emotions? the hearts? Why did this connect with the souls of so many? And I want to start with how it, it probably actually didn't connect with the elites, but how the elites tried to use this song. I think it's important to start with the elites and how they used it, because like you said earlier, that's how you encountered the song was through a Twitter account of a Christian nationalist. And so you who probably heard it on the Daily Wire or wherever it was. Like, yeah. Well, who knows? But you heard it yes. in that context. And so it framed the song in a particular way. And depending on where you encountered the song, you probably read into it different meaning. So we should start with how the elites did it. And then in the next part, talk about how just average people like you and me. Yeah. And I do think this is a classic tale of oppositional politics where one side claims something. This guy's on my team and uh -huh. the other side immediately says, well, if you like him, we hate him and we're going to tear him down. So let's start with the people who said, we're team Oliver Anthony. He's one of ours. He's our new bard singing our song and our cause. And I think the best place to start with this is going back to the Republican primary and listening to Ron DeSantis's response to the question about why he thought America connected so well with Oliver Anthony's song. If you are working hard and you can't afford groceries, a car, or a new home while Hunter Biden can make hundreds of thousands of dollars on lousy paintings. That is wrong. We, we also cannot succeed when the Congress spends trillions and trillions of dollars. Those rich men north of Richmond have put us in this situation and finally now, that's not the full response from DeSantis. He focuses primarily throughout his response on middle America, which I find interesting because I don't think Oliver Anthony's song is really about middle America. I think it's about blue collar, rural poverty, that part of America. But here's the key that stuck out. Did you notice what he said? He didn't say the Richmond north of Richmond. He said it's those Richmond north of Richmond. In other words, we're the good kind of Richmond north of Richmond, mm -hmm. us Republicans, and it's the Biden administration and his whole team gaggle of people. They're the Richmond, north of Richmond that you really need to be worried about. Well, and you know, it's a 
deft move politically as far as debate strategy, but it, yet it misses the point that Oliver Anthony is trying to say because Oliver Anthony is against the people who are elite, who've created a system that works for them. And part of the reason it works for them is they keep people on the bottom of the social class and economic classes divided. So what DeSantis is doing here is he's saying that there's a certain group of people, i.e. in DeSantis's mind, Biden's administration and Democrats, who are hurting you, but we want to come and fight for you. But I think Oliver Anthony and a lot of working class people are right to be suspicious because you have to ask the question, is someone like Laura Ingram or Ben Shapiro or whoever your favorite media pundits are, or maybe like a Ron DeSantis and whoever your favorite conservative politicians are, do they really know the life of the working class. I know they all pretend like they do. And maybe some actually do. Laura Ingram grew up in the whitest, elitist neighborhoods <laughs> imaginable. So we can at least speak for her. I mean, yes. I didn't read her biography. You'll have to share it with me. But the point that I think you're drawing out here, which is really critical, is that the people who are saying this jibes with our political program, what are they saying it jibes with? Well, I think it's this. There are a lot of people who feel in America like they're losers. Not losers in like the L on your forehead way, but they've lost in a system that's rigged against them. And that political message, that political ideology is what got Donald Trump elected in 2016. And so when they heard this song, they said, this guy's with us. He's our Eric Clapton. You know, he's going to speak our cause better than we can. But I can't, I mean, really, Ben Shapiro, Laura Ingram, Ron DeSantis, are they going to sing, I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for BS pay so I can sit out here and waste my life away, drag back home and drown my troubles away? I mean, that's not my life. No, I'm just hesitant to because I don't know everybody's life, right? Yes. And so I don't know where they came from. And just because people have reached power and money now doesn't mean they always had it. I mean, Oliver Anthony himself may very well be rich oh, very he soon. Is, he is very rich right now. Right. <laughs> yes. And therefore... But he's a rich man south of Richmond. <laughs> and therefore, he's going to be a rags to riches story. And maybe some of these other people have it as well. But I think the point, and maybe I'm wrong here, so I'm curious to hear your pushback. I think the point you're driving home is that a lot of people who are trying to use Oliver Anthony for their political agenda can't really identify with his life situation. I think when his song went viral, most of these people, if I'm going to take my most cynical take, here we go. Oh, here we most go. of these people thought that Oliver Anthony would be a useful idiot. In other words, someone who has this crazy moment of fame where he can get a lot of wealth and a lot of opportunity and we can co-opt him onto our side and he'll be with us because now he gets to keep his wealth and he gets to keep all of his privilege and opportunity and all the good things that come with that. And the irony is watching Oliver Anthony actually resist him. He's very upset about the Republican primary. We didn't even read the quotes about that. He has not turned out quite to be the useful idiot that they thought. But the bigger picture for me is that whether it's in politics or media, someone like Oliver Anthony is at the end of the day a useful tool, someone that can be used to rally the troops and motivate people to go out and vote for the person that you want them to vote for. Oh, yes, but so is everyone else. I mean, any incident, anything that happens in pop culture, every politician and every news commentator is trying to use it in a way to further their own agenda. And I can understand why Oliver Anthony would be upset to have his name brought up in that debate and then used by politicians. But he said, I'm talking about every person on that stage. That's what he said. I'm talking yes. about all those people on that and stage. He said, I'm talking about only about those people, yes, and those about people the, included. Yes. So, yes, them and a bunch of other people as well. But let's go to the 
liberals did with Oliver oh, Anthony. Yeah. Because what they did is they said, well, if the conservatives are for it, then we have to be against it. But how are we going to do that? And what they did is they went after his character. And they said, this man is a racist. This man hates poor people. This man only wants to help the working class white poor. He doesn't want to help the people in the inner city. And his song is laced with dog whistles. That's what they did to him. I think that Oliver Anthony didn't help himself in some instances, as the internet does when you become famous. It crawls through everything that you've ever done online, and it turns out that he has some playlists called Make Your Noggin Bigger. So these are videos that he shared that he said are going to make you smarter. And he has multiple videos, including conspiracy theories that Jews both caused and celebrated 9-11, which that's not going to help your case for, hey, I'm not a racist. Now, he hasn't spoken to that, and we don't know if you know he posted that a long time ago, and I don't agree with that or why he did it, but it's just a simple fact that it was out there. It is disconcerting and he hasn't spoken to it. And so it's a little bit hard to react to what he was thinking, why he posted it. But that came out later and it's not been discussed super widely. The big thing that the left really attached to was a line that we already read about 300 pound welfare recipients and why they said, and to be honest, I actually really agreed with this. And in fact, I agreed with it on my first listen. It was my first thought when I heard him talk about the welfare recipients. I thought this is the classic welfare queen trope. So this goes all the way back to the Reagan days where Ronald Reagan talked about welfare queens was the idea that there were these predominantly a black woman who has taken advantage of the welfare system to live an incredibly extravagant life, which I think on one level is probably ridiculous. I don't know if there's anybody living an extravagant life on welfare, but since then it's become a trope that's often seen as a dog whistle because it's not talking about everybody who takes welfare. It's got the urban poor particularly in its scope. And so the left, or at least some people on the left, used that line to attack him and say he's racist. Now, I don't think there's any reason to come to that conclusion. I mean, I think you've got to put those glasses on yeah. and then look at the song and come to that conclusion. You've got when to I be listened motivated. To it, I got from a white Christian nationalist guy who's right. got his own racist problems as it is. Like, So that was my automatic read. Now, you pointed out to me, and I think you were right in retrospect, it seems like he's talking about people in his own experience when he's talking about 300-pound people eating fudge rounds. He's talking about the poor and obese in his own community, which would be predominantly white. Again, now I'm using some of my own interpretive license here. I don't think he's criticizing these people. I think he's criticizing the rich men north of Richmond who take his money away and redistribute it to all these people. Now we're debating the song He's just again. trying to survive in a factory making 14, 15 an hour and trying to raise a family. I don't think he's got his target, like shooting after the recipients of the welfare. I agree. I agree. That is not the target. Let's pull back the camera. What are we talking about? We see now conservatives respond. They say, hey, this guy's our guy. He's our bard. He's our Eric Clapton. He's going to sing on our behalf. The left responds and they try to take the most cynical possible read of everything that he's saying, which again, I actually have some sympathies for because maybe I was just dumb enough to think the same things, but it wasn't because I had read things on the left. It was my initial first listen where I drew some of these conclusions. Bottom line though is how do the elites respond? He's either a tool to be used to get more votes or he's a tool to be used to get more votes on the other side by saying, we're not like that guy. We're for something better better than that guy. Let's not be like one of those, you know, white racist dudes in Virginia who sing songs like this. 
But what the liberals and conservatives both share in common is that they took this as a political program, a political statement. But as we've already talked about and heard from Oliver Anthony himself through those quotes, is that wasn't his intention at all. But of course, like we've said, everything gets caught up in team red, team blue and exploited, which kind of makes Oliver Anthony's point. Here's a guy who's just trying to make it and people are using him. The elites are using him. And I think both see this song as incredibly powerful, not just because of its virality. There's something about the song that's threatening to them. So one group wants to use it as fuel for their campaigns and the other group wants to try to neutralize the power by name calling and blaming. And no one really wants to talk about the thing that's supercharging the song's popularity across political lines. And that's the vibe. That's the pathos. That's the fact that there are a lot of people in America who feel like the system is rigged and they're the losers. Again, to quote Oliver Anthony, young men are putting themselves six feet in the ground because all this country does is keep kicking them down. Yeah, that's a line from the song. And the reason neither the Republicans or the Democrats want to talk about that core issue is because one thing they share in common is that they are the elite. They are the problem, and that's why they want to politicize it, to take the focus off of the thing that puts them in the spotlight, puts them under the microscope. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. So let's get into the popular reception. And obviously people are going to see this on Team Red because they bought into, hey, he's our Eric Clapton and I like the cause. And people are going to reject it on Team Blue and popular media because, you know, I don't like this guy. But I think more broadly, this song is connecting to a longing, which is that if you work hard enough, you should be able to make it. And the despair and the hopelessness in the song is that the opposite seems to be the case. Again, I just want to read another quote that he sings. He says, I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for BS pay so I can sit out here and waste my life away. And he says, it's a shame what the world's got into for people like me and people like you. See that populist note there. Wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is, it is. So now we're getting into what is it that strikes at people's hearts? What is it that drew people in? And it's that feeling that I can't get ahead. I'm working two jobs and I can't get 
ahead. And politicians on both sides in the last several years have been caught, sometimes in private conversations, sometimes publicly, criticizing those people. Remember Paul Ryan, the vice presidential candidate under Mitt Romney, talked about givers and takers. And we like Paul Ryan, but hey, you know, that's not a way to think about our country. Or Mitt Romney, he talked about people who are never going to be productive. You had Barack Obama saying, look, some people are bitter. They're clinging to their guns and their religion because they can't make it in life based on their merits. They can't succeed. And so they're bitter clingers. Or Hillary Clinton called people deplorables. And so both parties have kind of had this us versus them, the ones who can make it in our system and the ones who can't. And somebody like Oliver Anthony is coming along and saying, hey, you set the system up to benefit yourself. And it's not like we're not working hard down here. It's just the system's rigged. And what I want to highlight here, what Keith's getting at, is that there's been a cultural vibe shift. <laughs> there's something has changed since 2016. That's the break point that I would probably put on it. But maybe it goes all the way back to Occupy Wall Street. Something has changed in our country. Because before the 2016 election, in the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s, what Keith was talking about, about what you might call the deserving poor and the undeserving poor, that was widely accepted by America as a norm. You have people from Ronald Reagan to both Clintons to Obama to McCain to Marco Rubio, all saying that in America, you can go as far as your talents and hard work will take you with, of course, the opposite idea being true, that if you aren't making it, it's because you're probably amongst the undeserving poor. And what they want to make sure is that anyone who's poor, who's poor through no fault of their own, that they can make it in America, but if you are poor through a fault of your own, which would be the undeserving poor, well, that's your own problem and no one really cares. And that was a normal way of thinking in America. The word for this, by the way, is meritocracy. Yeah, let's stay there for one second because you're talking about politicians and how they use language and how they talk about people and classify people. And that's important because those are people who we're all familiar with and they shape the conversation in our society. So what you find is Reagan through Obama, every president, saying something to the effect of if you play by the rules and work hard, you'll succeed. You know, and they'll say it in different ways, like maybe you'll do better than your parents or whatever, but work hard, play by the rules, you succeed. Nobody is better at saying that than Obama. But I said, he said it more said than it. anybody else. Yes, and then it stopped right after him. Donald Trump never said that. And you know who else didn't say it? And I think this is so incredibly interesting. It kind of gets to the point of this whole conversation is Bernie Sanders never said it. So Donald Trump on the right and Bernie Sanders on the left, independent from Vermont, right? Left the Democrat Party. What they said was the system's rigged. The system's against you. The elite have set up a plan that works for them, but it doesn't work for the average person. And that connected, that populism on the right or the left, it connected with people in a huge way in 2016 with the election of Trump. And it's still happening today. And the Oliver Anthony song is just part of that wave. I actually want to listen to a clip from Donald Trump when he announced that Mike Pence was going to be his vice president in the presidential run in 2016. So this is before he's a president. And I want you to pay attention because he does not sound like Reagan. He does not sound like Obama. He does not believe in a meritocracy where if you work hard, you're going to be able to have the life you want to live. No, he's talking about winners and losers. He's talking about a rigged system. And you, of course, who he's asking to vote for him, are on the losing side of that system. And again, this is a message that connected with people across the country, people who were historically Democratic voters, they connect with this. So let's listen to the clip. It's about two minutes long, but I think it's really telling. I have joined the political arena so that the powerful can no longer beat up on people who cannot defend themselves. 
Nobody knows the system better than me. Which is why I alone can fix it. I have seen firsthand how the system is rigged against our citizens, just like it was rigged against Bernie Sanders. He never had a chance, never had a chance. But his supporters will join our movement because we will fix his biggest single issue, trade deals that strip our country of its jobs and strip us of our wealth as a country. Millions of Democrats will join our movement because we are going to fix the system so it works fairly and justly for each and every American. That's a super powerful clip. Because you notice how he brings in Sanders and Democrats to fix the country against the elites who are taking jobs overseas to pad their own bank accounts? He called his own home run. I mean, that's what oh. that clip was, if you think about it. Because he named it. These people will come with me because they understand the system is rigged and they're the losers. And I am the person who knows the system well enough to actually fix it. And when you compare what Hillary Clinton was saying... That's when it really stands out. And you see the contrast because she hadn't picked up, like a lot of people hadn't, I'm not blaming her. She just hadn't picked up that the whole mood and vibe of the country has changed. So she's saying stuff like this. Here's a quote. Our campaign is about the fundamental belief that in America, every person, no matter what you look like, who you are, who you love, should have the chance to go as far as your hard work and dreams will take you. Or here's another one. She said, if elected, she would make it possible for you to get the chances and the opportunities you deserve to have. Or how about this one? I want this to be a true meritocracy. I'm tired of inequality. I want people to feel like they can get ahead if they work for it. So she sounds like every president from Reagan through yeah, Obama. She's saying the system works. She's going along and just repeating what you're supposed to say. That's the playbook. Say that the system works for you. Just work hard. But Trump and Sanders figured out that's not where people were. That wasn't their lived experience. It wasn't the vibe. The vibe is exactly what Trump said. The system is rigged, which, of course, is what Oliver Anthony is saying, which tells us that that vibe from 2016 to today, it hasn't changed. There are still a lot of people who feel as though America hasn't lived up to his promises. And so I think Oliver Anthony's song is most fundamentally a Jeremiah about the failure of meritocracy. This idea that if you work hard, you'll be able to have a good life, have what you want, have what you need. It puts to a musical expression the feeling that America's across the class divide and even political divide, as we saw Democrats voting for Donald Trump in 2016 and again in 2020, it puts to expression a feeling many people have, that we were sold a false bill of goods, that you can work as hard as you want to, and at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter, that we feel like we're worse off today than we were five years ago. 
And it's not just a feeling. I mean, there's, wait, wait, wait. would you say it's more than a feeling? It's more than a feeling. <laughs> there's data to back up people's experience. Now, let me just say real quick that we talked about meritocracy back in February of 2022. We had a whole episode on that issue. So if you want to just dive into meritocracy, go back to it. It's called O. Say, can you meritocracy? Oh, I like that. Creative. February 20. We can't take credit for that. That's our friend, Rebecca. She helps us come up with all of our titles and she's so creative. Yeah. So if you want to just dive into meritocracy and I love talking about it. It's one of our better episodes. I'd go back and listen to it. But I want to just bring a little bit into this conversation so you can see that people have real reason because maybe you're part of the population like Patrick and I, the system does work for us. And so you look at an Allery Anthony and you can't really understand where he's coming from. So let's just say that people are advancing up social classes at a much slower rate. Fewer and fewer people are able to go from poor to rich or poor to middle class. America has become more of a caste system, not based on race, but based on economic opportunities and educational opportunities. Did did you know that the elite universities used to, not that long ago, take a high percentage of people who applied to them And now it's down into the single digits. And a lot of those are legacy admissions. And so the elite university attracts people whose parents went to elite universities and probably married a spouse who also went to elite university, who got great jobs, who could afford to get them the best tutoring, the best international experiences, help writing their essays, all that stuff so that they could fill out the application. They even make a donation to the campus to ensure that their kid gets accepted. And instead of those slots and those elite universities going to the people who work the hardest and are really smart and it would bring something extra to the school, it just goes to the smart people who are connected to the rich people. Well, and of course, that's the pipeline to New York City, to Washington, D.C., to San Francisco, Wall Street, to Wall Street, Goldman Sachs, to, to all of these places. Absolutely. Here's another interesting point. Let's say you are someone who grew up in poverty and you say, I want to move to a place where I have the best chance of having a better life by the end of my life. And my kids have a better chance of having a better life. Well, don't move to America. You'd be better off moving to Canada or to the Netherlands, or this one's going to hurt a little bit, uh, moving to China. You can go live with the communists and you have a better chance of raising your social class and status. But I think it's also worth noting that rich Americans are rapidly getting richer. Middle America is slowly getting richer richer. So middle America is better off today than it was in 1979. So I'm looking at a study, by the way, that's comparing 1979 to 2019, but uneducated Americans are getting poor. So back in the day, you could graduate from high school and go work at a factory and make a good living that could support a family, but that is no longer the case. The reality is this is according to the Congressional Research Service study that was done in 2019. So during Trump's presidency, this is what it says is a quote, Real inflation-adjusted wages at the 90th percentile increased. So these are the wealthiest Americans. Increased over 1979 to 2019 for the workforce as a whole and across sex, race, and Hispanic ethnicity. And it goes on to say real wages rose at the top of the distribution, whereas wages rose at lower rates or fell at the middle and bottom. So if you were at the top, you're making more. If you're at the middle or bottom, there's a chance that your wages were falling. And then this last one's important. Wages for workers with a high school diploma or less education 
declined in real terms at the top, middle, and bottom of the wage distribution, whereas wages rose for workers with at least a college degree. So there are a lot of people in America who they can look at their parents and they can look at their life and they can say, I am worse off today than I was a long time ago. I even say this to someone in the middle class. I mean, when you look at inflation today and how much it costs just to buy groceries and gas and other things, I feel it. And by the way, I'm someone who's pretty well benefited from the system. So here's my conclusion to what you just said. You are for making America great again. <laughs> I think you just laid out a great case to make America great again. I mean, you got your hat on over there, your Trump t-shirt. Uh, I just red-pilled myself. <laughs> Obviously, I'm joking, kind of, but I'm not joking in the sense that you can see why Trump's message and even that phrase, that slogan, touched so many people and tapped into this anger and resentment and why that propelled him to the White House and continues to propel him today. At the end of the day, it's because the system does feel rigged, and there's a real reason why people feel as though the system is rigged. The meritocracy that we were promised, that if you work hard, you get a better life, doesn't seem to be panning out. Now, you can go listen to our episode. You know, what Keith and I say in there is that meritocracy is just about the worst way to organize a society except for everything else. <laughs> right. It turns out that when you go to get your heart surgery, you want a doctor who rose to the top of their profession yes. because they were smart and good at what he or she did. I mean, that's even true when you have a repairman over to your house who's going to fix your toilet. You want them to be good at what they do. And so we do want a system where people who work hard and are smart and are accomplished and who are good at what they do, they rise to the top. So we're not anti-meritocracy. We're just saying that for a lot of people, it's not working. Yeah. And what I think has happened since 2016 and is certainly happening through this song is that it's showing Americans. Now, of course, the average American wouldn't use this language, but let's speak to our fellow Christians here, that Babylon never lives up to its promises. A lot of people aren't used to thinking about America as Babylon, but it's probably the best archetype that we have in the Bible for how we think about any nation in the world. And Babylon never lives up to its promises. If it promises a meritocracy, well, the meritocracy in a fallen world never quite works out the way that even Babylon might want it to. And Oliver Anthony's song is pulling back the veil on the whore of Babylon and its failure to deliver what it's promised to people. But I think that the failure of Babylon in America is an opportunity for the member of God's kingdom, of God's system to say something truer, to live lives more beautiful, and to use the despair that people are experiencing to both empathize with them, but also to point them ultimately towards Jesus as the solution to our problems. I think we all have this longing in our heart for a just world, a fair world. And the Bible speaks to that because the Bible and the prophets or even Jesus himself criticize, condemn, use really harsh language about people who exploit others and who neglect the poor. And there's this prophetic call for justice. And when we read those passages, we're like, yes, we want that just world. But the reality is that we live in a Genesis 3 world. And you can say that however you want. All I mean is that we live in a sin curse world, a broken world, a world that falls far short of our dreams and hope, a world that is often unjust in a lot of different ways. And instead of dealing with that, instead of going, okay, we live in an unjust world, how can we work for justice here, but have an eye on heaven, an eye on the kingdom? We don't have that, at least not as a society as a whole. Maybe some individuals do, or some churches, some organizations, some movements, but not as a society as a whole. So we just are looking for justice here and now. 
And then we don't get that justice here and now, because again, we live in a same cursed Genesis 3 world. And then we get angry about it and we start blaming people. But here's the thing. We have to cultivate the ability to work for greater justice now in this world. That's what the prophets are calling for. But with this idea, the prophets also speak to that the kingdom of God, that perfectly just world, the kingdom of God only comes with the king, with King Jesus ruling and reigning. And since he's not ruling and reigning now, we're going to have to understand that there's brokenness instead of blaming other people, instead of letting that drive us into different factions that oppose one another and then use the broken people, poor people, disadvantaged people for our own power trips and ego trips and to advance our own political agenda. Instead of using them, instead work together to strive toward justice, knowing we'll never quite get there and yet we got to work for it. I think you've done a nice summary of anything and everything else we'd want to cover in the rest of the episode. (laughs) That's fantastic. And I do want to go into a little more depth, but let me say this. Christians should be the ones who know how to handle the tension of already but not yet. We know that we want perfect justice, but we have to be satisfied in this age with proximate justice. Things won't be perfect. And I'm thinking about how Jesus riffs on Deuteronomy, you know, which has these two contradictory statements that on the one hand, if you follow God and live according to his covenant, there will be no poverty in the land. And then a few verses later, it says, oh, but by the way, the poor are always going to be with you, which is something that Jesus later repeats. We have to live in that already, but not yet. And that's a huge challenge for us. I think the other big challenge for Christians when we see this kind of Oliver Anthony thing is that we fall into the trap that, frankly, I kind of fell into after I heard Oliver Anthony, which is that we respond to a song like this, not by trying to think what's hurting in our culture that people are resonating with this message, which is an empathetic call. Instead, what we do is we let our political allegiances cue our responses. By which I mean, Christians on the right saying, you know, hoorah, this is awesome, let's go with it, you know, MAGA, long live Trump, which is what I saw, a guy who has a Twitter feed celebrating Trump's mugshot at one point, and then the next thing is Oliver Anthony, right? So that's one way that we, hey, we're team right, so we're going to be pro-Oliver Anthony, but we also see the opposite thing happen, where, hey, I'm team left, so I'm going to be really critical of Oliver Anthony, I'm going to talk about the dog whistles, I'm going to find everything that's wrong with it, and I'm not really going to get into the question of why is this connecting with so many people. Instead, I think we need to let the Bible cue our responses. And I think the Bible cues in us what Keith just laid out, which is first and foremost, empathy for those who are hurting. In fact, the book of Isaiah deeply connects our concern for those who are hurting and those who are experiencing injustice with spiritual renewal. Those are things we like to separate. You know, you've got justice on one hand and your spiritual life on the other, but Isaiah puts them smack together. This is Isaiah 58 verses five to eight. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your home when you see them naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? He says, so if you do that, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer and you shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness, if you pour out yourself for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. 
And so I just wanted to read that. I know it's a long passage and we don't typically do a lot of long passages on here, but I wanted to read it because it's telling me that when I hear a song like this and hear the plight of so many people, if my response is just criticism, I am turning down an opportunity for spiritual renewal. Well, what I really like about the passage that you read, Patrick, is that it speaks to those of us who are tempted to say, let's focus on the spiritual. Like, let's pray for people. Let's try to save them, get them to believe in Jesus. Let's get them into a church. Let's get them into a Bible study and teach them these things, but ignore that they need a job. Ignore that there may be a single parent kind of struggling to get by. And ignore even some of the systemic problems in our society that keep them from being able to thrive and flourish in their whole life. And what God is saying there in Isaiah 55, I think, is if you do all these prayers and you have this fast and you offer all these sacrifices, but you're not trying to work for justice and on behalf of people who are disadvantaged and marginalized, then God's like, I don't even want to hear your prayers. Like, get those out of here. They're not real. They're not genuine. Amos 5 says exactly that. I hate, I despise your feast. So that was a normal religious celebration back in the day. You know, we have communion now. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. I don't like it when you go to church. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. (laughs) I hope God doesn't say that about my worship. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. And then he says this, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's exactly what Keith just laid out. And it's a theme that runs throughout the prophets, that there's a way to have a kind of false religion that looks very pious, that looks very religious, that reads the Bible and does the prayers, but it doesn't care for those who are needy, for those who are deeply hurting. And if you thought that Let Justice Roll Down sounded familiar, it's because it was part of Dr. King's powerful message looking for racial justice, but of course applying beyond that. So here's what I just want to make sure we don't lose sight of, is that the prophets are saying work toward justice, but I've got an eye on the future when God will bring that perfectly just world. In the meantime, let's don't fight over it. Let's don't fracture over it. Let's work together on behalf of people who need our help. I think one other note, and I won't keep reading through, although I've got piles and piles of verses here that I would love to read. He does. I mean, it's page after page. (laughs) Pick one more. (laughs) I think something else the prophets do is give us laments. They give us language with which we can empathize with those who are hurting, those who are on the margins, those who have experienced injustice. You know, if if you want to go pick those up, Jeremiah 22, 13 to 14, Micah 6, 10 to 12, these are some great passages. But the prophets also confronted systemic injustice. When justice is woven into how we actually operate our society. Again, you can find this in Isaiah, in Isaiah 5, verses 18 to 23. I just love this one part where he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, (laughs) because it speaks so clearly to our moment. But it's not just that. The prophets don't just give us a voice to lament in, they also call us to seek justice, which is what we've been highlighting. Amos 7:14 says this: seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. And by the way, the gate was like the ancient courthouse, so that's a very political statement. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And so I'm kind of circling back to where I started. A Christian faith that is cynical about the plight of people who are hurting, 
because they have the wrong skin color, whether it's because you're the rural white poor or you're the urban poor. When you become cynical about people's hurt because you think they're on team red or you think they're on team blue, you are shooting down an opportunity that God wants to give, not only to seek justice, but to experience spiritual renewal. He says, if you love justice, if you seek this goodness, that's going to be part of the pathway of you experiencing my grace in your life. And of course, I don't want to turn that down. I don't want to resist those opportunities. And because we've been circling around the point, we all know what Keith's going to say next, which is remember, though, that justice is proximate, and it's not until the king comes with the kingdom that we will experience perfection. And that is where we have to end, because if people are experiencing grievance and a longing for something better, we need to lament and sing sad songs with them and say, hey, Jesus understands. He's with you in that. But we also need to say, your longing for a just society, as Oliver Anthony says at the end of the song, you know, I wish I could just wake up and this wasn't the way it is, but this is the way it is. We say, you are exactly right, but it's not the way that it's always going to be. And we have to help point people with all of their hunger and all their longing towards the only one who can actually satisfy that hunger. And that person is Jesus. He's the one who will, according to Revelation 21, make death go away forever and wipe every tear from every eye. He is the one who can set the world back into joint. He's the one who can bring righteousness and justice on earth as it is in heaven. Can I just throw out an idea to you that I did and works really well and maybe be something you could do? And here's what I did is I just sent this song on YouTube to some people who are coming over to my house for dinner and said, watch this before you come. And then when they got there after we were kind of eating dinner, I just said, let's discuss this. Let's watch it one more time together just to refresh memories. And then let's just talk about this. Now, what I found is that some people hadn't heard it. Some people didn't know any background about Oliver Anthony. And some people had been watching it pretty closely and carefully. And I wanted to talk about why had this song received such an incredible reception? Why did it rise up on the iTunes charts and all? But what it did is opened up a conversation into God's concern and God's heart and how we should respond as Christians. There were some people who are Christians in that conversation and some people, I don't know where they are spiritually, but it led to a really good conversation. So if you're looking for opportunities to go a little deeper with some friends or to have conversations that could be contentious, but to do it in a more hopeful, productive way, this might be a way to, to do it. Yeah. So concluding thought, we are at the moment living in a decadent society that is completely overwhelmed with despair. The American dreams made a lot of promises. Babylon makes all kinds of promises, but it couldn't fulfill those promises. And people are hungry today for justice. They're hungry to be seen and heard and not judged. They're hungry to be healed. And I do think as Christians, maybe it's around the dinner table, like he said, our calling is to name that hunger, to empathize with it, to work as far as we can, as far as it is reliant upon us to alleviate those pains as a way of pointing towards a future age when Jesus will fulfill his promise to set the world back into joint. That's what we have to do. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. <laughs> okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.